At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Yes, we do. Here we are. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. This is the first Happy New Year that we've had as a podcast. It is. Isn't that fun? Yeah, that is fun. And not only that, but uh, we broke a, a milestone this last week, didn't we? Did we? With our most downloaded day. We did. Ever? We did. That was really fun. That was really fun. It felt like, that was really exciting, but I was like, what? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Why though? (laughs) Not mad, really happy about it, in fact, but yeah, it was a surprise. Yeah. And by a fairly large margin too, wasn't it? Yeah. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, that just means a lot to us. So welcome any new listeners. We're happy to have you. That as well. Well, we need to always make sure that we are asking the most important question at the very top of this episode. Mm. What are you drinking? I am going with the classic. I am doing the Dr. Pepper Amaretto. Ooh. Yep. Also a classic for you because you love Amaretto. Yes, I do. And Dr. Pepper. And that's true. (laughs) Uh, Two classics in one. Yeah. Why don't you tell everyone what you're drinking over there? So I got a special little Christmas gift this year. This is uh, from the On the Rocks Premium Cocktails uh, collection, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. And uh, I am drinking from from that collection, the Cosmopolitan, crafted with effin' vodka. It's E-F-F-E-N, effin' vodka, (laughs) (laughs) which is hilarious. Beautiful. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, I figured because it's New Year's, go with a classic New Year's drink, I think... The Cosmopolitan. You're what you're doing right now is showing everyone how little we actually know, I know. about alcohol. I know because someone will say that has nothing to do with New Year's ever, and I'm just gonna or say, or you're well, spot on. I can and be. I just outed us. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible, but yeah, but actually, yeah. that gift of the little cocktail collection was specifically for the show. That's true. Your mom That's got true. that for us. Yes, and said, "Wouldn't it be fun to have different drinks on the show?" Thought that was so cute. It is. That it was is. such and a nice And it sure gift. would be more fun to have different drinks on the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that uh, string of of a week or so that I or a month or two that I just <laughs> straight up had the same thing every episode because mm-hmm. I was out of everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now we got a little a little supply. Yeah, that's fun. So yeah, on the rocks premium cocktails, the Cosmopolitan, and uh, 
Yeah, I haven't even tried it yet, so I'm gonna take a drink now. Give it, see a, how, give yeah. it a taste. This is now a review blog podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, the clink. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's good. I like that. You really do. I do. Okay. It actually tastes a lot like the the simply drinks that we have. Oh, Just nice. Just like with a little bit more to it. Nice. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, what do you have for us today? By way of feel-good facts. So, dolphins give each other names. What? In a pod, it's been observed that there's a specific sound given to each specific dolphin. And that all the other dolphins in the pod recognize the name of the dolphin. And the one that gets that sound, like, recognizes that it's being... Huh. That's really yeah. fun. They, like, know each yeah. other's names and they know their own names. Yeah. So, they just communicate like that. Wow. That's really cool. I guess... It's funny because animals that have different uh, vocalizations, Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be that surprising to us that they can communicate to some degree, but it always is. It it just is surprising like that they can have a form of direct communication. Yeah. That's more than just um, random sounds in Mm -hmm. reaction to things. They actually Mm -hmm. are communicating thoughts. They are so Mm -hmm. smart. Yeah. Dolphins are crazy smart. That's really cool. Yeah, I loved that one. I thought it was cute. It's like, hey, Dave, get over here. You know, like yeah. you're wandering yeah. off, Dave. Get back. Yeah, but in dolphin, I'm not going to do my best dolphin do because not. it would not be good. But We would get some uh, <laughs> some words, I'm sure. I'm sure. Just people that Kevin, just never do that again. Please, for the love of God, never do that again. I canceled your show <laughs> and gave you a one-star review. <laughs> he tried to do dolphin sounds at one point and <laughs> All right, well, my dear. What do you have for us today beyond the feel-good fact? Now it's time for you to go ahead and bring us down a notch, I think. Yeah, I think this will bring us up a notch. Oh, okay. Yes. So our final holiday bonus episode was actually voted on over on our Patreon. And so our subscribers there picked today's topic. Fun. Today we're talking about a super creepy series of inexplicable events in the English countryside that are so mysterious that these events have yet to be explained even to this day. Mm. Though many people who were witnesses to the events believe that there's only one logical explanation, that a small town in Britain was being visited by extraterrestrial beings. <gasps> Today, I'm going to tell you all about the Warminster Thing. The Thing? The Warminster the Thing. The Warminster Thing. is. Does that have anything to do with the thing, like from the movie The Thing? No. It's just a thing. That's another thing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just curious. That's it's not a John Carpenter. Reference. I feel like it's I feel like it's a particular thing to say. <laughs> to call yes. something the thing. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. either way, this one is a doozy. So I can't wait. Hang on. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna start with the early hours of Christmas morning in nineteen sixty four in Warminster, which is a small southwestern English town. At 1.25 in the morning, a Warminster woman named Mildred Head was startled awake by a strange sound. Hmm. Mildred would later explain her experience in an interview, stating that her ceiling had, quote, come alive with strange sounds lashing at the roof, end quote. Hmm. She described it as sounding like wire or metal rods brushing against the roofing that grew louder and louder until it sounded like her roof was being pummeled with large hailstones. So Mildred got out of bed super freaked out and she tried to figure out what was causing the noise. Mm -hmm. She couldn't see anything when she looked out of her window, no rain or hail or snow, but a new sound would join in with the sounds of the things crashing against her roof. It was a low humming noise that started out relatively quiet, but just like the sounds on the roof grew louder and louder until it all faded into what she described as a quote, faint whisper Mm. or a low whistling or wheezing end quote. Ooh, So what is that? Um, Yes. Mildred wouldn't be the only person in Warminster to experience something strange on that Christmas morning. Within a few hours of Mildred Head's experience, there was a group of 30 soldiers stationed at Nook Camp about four miles away from Warminster. Oh, wow. While they were all sleeping soundly, they too were startled awake by a bizarre sound. A sergeant at the camp would later report that whatever it was, it sounded like a huge chimney stack being ripped from the roof obliterated into pieces and then scattered across the whole camp. It was a massive noise, but when the men went to investigate, they saw nothing. 
None of them could fathom what could have made that noise, Hmm. especially since they saw no trace of anything. Yeah. They said it sounded like no conventional aircraft that any of them could think of, which it's interesting to think about why they chose to compare the sound to an aircraft instead of like a weather Mm -hmm. event or like any general loud noise. Well, and what year was this again? 1964. Okay. So there's been aircrafts around for a while up to that point, but- I just yeah. thought it was interesting yeah. that they chose it to compare it to an aircraft. Yeah. So mm. it must have sounded mechanical in some yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's mm. my, I thought that was weird. That but is really weird. Either way, there were 30 witnesses of this event. Just got to keep that in mind. That's a lot of people that all heard the same sound and described it in the same way. Mm-hmm. So later on that same morning, a woman in Warminster named Marjorie Bai was walking to Christ Church for the early morning service around 615 in the morning. When she reached the church, she was suddenly struck with a, quote, menacing sound. Sudden vibrations came overhead, chilling in intensity, end Mm. quote. She was thrown to the ground by the intensity of the noise and was frozen in place in a, quote, grip of steel, a peculiar droning, end quote, Mm. which is a dope name for this episode. (laughs) That's what I'm calling this episode. That's it. So as she laid there, she literally felt as though she was being pinned to the ground. Shockwaves of sound racked her body, but she scrambled with all of her strength toward the doors of the church and, with much difficulty, made it inside of the sanctuary. I mean, apart from the obvious weirdness of a super powerful sound like that, this would be exceptionally scary considering that Warminster was a small market town and Mm. it would still be relatively dark and quiet at that time in the morning. Yeah. So she was, like, pretty much alone when this happened to her. Oh, It would be really scary to be the only... Right. Like, nobody witnessed that. Yeah, you're and you're just kind of like stuck in, in like just reeling the, from it. It's the what's what's the the phrase? Um, like like the silence is echoing kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Like mm-hmm. you're just very aware that you're alone because of the nothing happening mm-hmm. around you. Yeah. Right. Hmm. But she wasn't totally alone. A postmaster named Roger Rump was asleep in his home, which was near Christ Church, when he was woken up by an intense sound. He described it as a terrifying clatter, as though the roof tiles were being rattled about and plucked off by some tremendous force. Hmm. Then came a scrambling sound as if they were being loudly slammed back into place. I could hear an odd humming tone. It was most unusual. It lasted no more than a minute. Hmm. That was a direct quote from Roger. So his experience to me sounds like kind of like a combination of the other experiences. You've got like the weird roof sounds and the humming, like in Mildred's story, the intense volume of the crashing stones, like the 30 soldiers. And then you've got the general intensity, like in Marjorie's story. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. That is really interesting. And it it's also from an official point of view, which is. What do you mean official? Like from a, isn't he a police officer? No, a postmaster. Oh, a postmaster, postmaster. I, mis- I misunderstood that. I mean, even still, like yeah. that's a fairly official governmental role. It's got an important like, job. Yeah. So that's <laughs> in all, we're looking at dozens upon dozens of people describing an otherworldly noise. Nobody would see anything, no source of the sound at all. No mm-hmm. one would see what was making the sound. The events in Warminster on Christmas morning would first be reported on by the Warminster Journal by journalist Arthur Shuttlewood in 1965 and would eventually make it into other local and national publications. Hmm. And this wouldn't be the end of the strangeness in Warminster, nor was it technically the beginning of it either. Oh. So let's talk a little bit about some other one-off kind of weirdness in the area. Yeah. So there's not really a consensus on when UFO and other strange phenomena began in Warminster or in England as a whole. Mm -hmm. Trying to narrow down which events to talk about to paint the best picture of what the overall feelings were about this topic is tough. So I'm going to just kind of like hop around to different dates and places and kind of pick a few random ones. Sure. So we're going to start back in the 1930s. In December of 1930, a man was driving on Salisbury Banford Road. Salisbury is roughly 30 minutes from Warminster. So this guy's driving on the road at night when he noticed something very odd. Ahead of him was a black mist that seemed to be moving towards him. Before he could register what was happening around him, his vehicle was completely engulfed in the mist. That's when the man noticed a form ahead of him. 
Mm. He couldn't really describe the shape of it, but I'm assuming that it was at least vaguely humanoid based off of what happened next. Suddenly, the man was grabbed by a glowing gray, quote, gory looking hand. Ooh. End quote. Ooh. A gory looking hand. That's a interesting adjective to use for that. That's an image. Yes. And just as quickly as he was surrounded and grabbed, he was released and the mist disappeared. Many cite this as being an elaborate ghost story intended to bolster the credibility of other stories, but it is still a pretty widely talked about report. Yeah. Hmm. As far as the UFO phenomenon itself, many people would contend that the sighting that sort of kicked off the global fascination with the subject was the Roswell incident in the 1940s, which, as we know, happened to the United States, eventually making its way into Britain in the 1950s. Hmm. The general reception of the idea of flying saucers and men from outer space by the public was mixed. Mm -hmm. There was like a wise, healthy skepticism across the board. There were fantastical, oftentimes ridiculous stories, but there were also many people across the whole world who began reporting sightings of all kinds that were like weirdly consistent. Hmm. Sightings of UFOs date back to ancient Egypt, according to some accounts, with a real influx of sightings beginning in the 1750s. Stories Mm. of ghost rockets in Sweden in the 1940s and 50s, as well as mystery airships reported in the United States in 1896 and 1897, Mm. in New Zealand in 1909, and in Britain in 1913. So, So, okay, yeah, so this this is way more than just... 1940s Roswell happens and everybody kind of reacts in response to that. This is um, unexplainable sightings Mm -hmm. for hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. which, you know. And thousands, depending on the source. Yeah, true. And I feel like it's too easy to say, oh, well, those people didn't understand you know, whatever scientific thing that we have now. Sure. So they didn't, they didn't realize that what they were seeing was this or whatever. Right. It's, and, and I, I don't discredit that as like being always untrue. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of that too, but just the thought of like all of these different experiences being 100% misunderstandings. is like so unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and, you know, the the interesting thing is that there is a lot of consistency across those reports, Mm -hmm. but they just didn't have a category for it yet. Like they weren't like in 1896 being like, oh, I just saw a flying saucer. They weren't saying that. Right. But they were like, what? What was that? None of us know what this is. It took so much time and so many experiences to get to the point where in the 40s they could say a UFO or whatever Mm -hmm. they would call it at that point in time. Sure. But. It seems like like Roswell and everything after that is more of a reaction to not just Roswell, but everything else that led up to it mm-hmm. is what it kind of sounds like to me. Yeah. Being very uneducated on this subject. Sure. Yeah. No, I totally get what you mean. So all of that to say there are accounts of unknown aircrafts all over the world and throughout much of recorded history. So mm. what's the deal with it? Is everybody making these sightings up? If so, why? Like, what would the point be? Right. Is there any merit to any of these reports? Should we take any of these reports seriously or at least look into them with an open mind? Hmm. I'd contend that we totally should. We should at least be willing to look at something with an open mind. Yeah. What if there's more to the world than what I already know? (laughs) Right. Right. It's like a very logical, I feel like. Yeah. I like feel like. If my dad's listening, he's giggling about a tinfoil hat for me on this already. (laughs) But I think we should be open minded. So another very famous British UFO sighting took place in 1950 and was reported on in a publication called Flying Saucers Over the West in 1968. A man known as A.W. Byrne and his wife and daughter had been out and about and then they made their way back home to their house in Devon, which Hmm. is about two hours away from Warminster. On the evening of October 30th, 1950, the family arrived at their home. He dropped them off at their front gate. He pulled into the garage. He stopped the car and climbed out. Hmm. He closed the garage doors, which left him sitting in the dark garage. 
His eyes quickly adjusted to the darkness as he began walking towards his house from the garage. So it was like a detached oh, sure. garage. Okay. Yeah. He dropped the wife and daughter off and then parked and, and was walking yep. in to like he'd probably done a million times, you know. Right. Right. There weren't many lights in his neighborhood except for one obscured streetlight. So as he was walking towards the kitchen door that led into his home, Mr. Burns stopped dead in his tracks when he noticed something bizarre right over his head. Above him was a funnel-shaped stream of white flames coming down, pointed side down like a tornado. Mm. Its descent was silent, and the motion of the funnel seemed almost as if it were reaching for the ground, like how you reach out with your hand. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Don't like that. (laughs) Mr. Byrne, totally mystified, watched for 30 seconds as the funnel lowered closer to the ground from above before it suddenly vanished. He looked around for a moment, and that's when he saw it again, but this time it was down the street a few houses over. And this time it was spherical in shape and was moving horizontally instead of lowering towards the ground. Mm. It's like like gently moving Mm -hmm. back and forth. Weird. So he watched this ball of fire as it moved south for a couple of miles at least. He continued watching it even as it moved further away from him, and that's when the object began moving upwards. He looked above the flaming sphere and saw that it was moving towards a large, disc-shaped craft. Mm. Mr. Byrne alerted his family to come and see what he was observing, but when he returned to the yard, the objects were both gone. Mr. Byrne reported his sightings to the local police, but they informed him that they'd received no other reports like it. And so mm. they asked him, like, you know, we're, we're taking you seriously, but do you want anyone else to know about this? He said, no, thank you. Please do not attach my (laughs) name to this. He did ask for police to inform him if there were more sightings from other people. And then he ended up reaching out to a publication and he asked them to share his statement anonymously in case anyone else had seen it, but was too afraid to come forward. Sure. Yeah. Which like not very many people want to be the guy who saw a UFO. Right. (laughs) Plenty do. (laughs) Yeah. Like part of me, I'm, I'm on the fence about it personally. Sure. Because, like, yeah, that would be kind of crazy and cool. But also, nobody would believe me. Right. I'd get a small pocket of really cool people from the internet who would believe me. Yeah. And really cool is a little bit subjective in this scenario. because Isn't though? They could be cool or they could be very not cool. I think they're pretty cool, Kevin. <laughs> well, they they might be the kind of cool that shows up to your house unannounced and wants uh, okay. to do tests on you. And those would not oh. be cool people. Right. Yes. Right. Are you referring to the men in black? Yes. Those Shut be... your mouth about what you saw. Yes. Exactly. Stop, stop tweeting about the UFOs. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You never know. Yeah, exactly. You never know. Exactly. So as far as witnesses of UFOs go, Mr. Burns seemed to be somewhat of a middle ground witness. He was not out looking for crafts when he saw one, but he was aware of the flying saucer phenomenon. He didn't want people to think he was crazy for his reports, so he remained anonymous when his report went public. And from there, citizens and military in Britain would start making reports of unidentified flying objects. So much so that the Royal Air Force Base were instructed to always record and report on any UFO sightings. Mm. So it was like a wave of people being like, saw this thing yeah, in the sky. Here's what it was like. Weird. No huh. clue what it was. So... That is really interesting and creepy. And also it's not just like, like, uh, I, I don't want to come across like, I think this is all like oogie boogie, you know, whatever. Like there's an element to it where if there's truth to it, it's a scientific phenomenon as well mm-hmm. to be like, we, we need to understand it. Like, why? and like a security thing too. <laughs> yeah, like that's true. A potential safety thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I feel like that starts to get back into the oogie boogie kind of like scary side of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. For me personally, whenever I think of alien life, I'm kind of like more on the uh, the scientific. This seems fun to me, kind of a mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I'm sure it would also be horrifying if there were like little green men running around, you know, if they just like popped up and started invading earth, I don't think we would think they were cool anymore. Yeah. It'd be a little bit different. It's like the idea of it, but they also could be, (laughs) you know, I don't know. know? Well, we would either find out too late (laughs) or we would find out and we'd all be fine. 
And uh, those are the odds that you take. <laughs> right. That's true. So in Warminster itself, in November of 1960 and 1961, there were more sightings, each with multiple witnesses, of a bizarre object that was emitting blinding white sparks. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Across the whole of Britain were stories of strange crafts and lights in the sky, mysterious craters, and even cult-like operations of people who insisted that they were the voice between humanity and the aliens. Oh, that's... mm, I don't like that. These stories ranged from very compelling and mysterious to downright bizarre and almost comical. Sure, sure. So I tell you these stories to demonstrate a tiny bit of the different types of occurrences in Britain around the time of the Warminster thing. So we have a decent amount of context going in. Okay. Like the general cultural consensus was a little mixed, but there was enough being reported on Mm -hmm. by, by alleged eyewitnesses that at least people were aware of the phenomenon. Yeah. So a few short weeks after the Christmas morning events on January 7th, 1965, the Warminster journal, which is a local publication shared Marjorie and Roger's stories about their experiences. The phenomenon itself was described as the the thing for the first time in this article. Interesting. Okay, so the thing in this case is not a creature, but more of an event. Yes. Or a series of events, I guess, is yes. what they're, they're describing. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But something was missing. For whatever reason, some of the more like razzle-dazzle details were left out of the January 7th article. And this was the beginning of journalist Arthur Shuttlewood's journey into exploring and attempting to explain the thing. So Arthur Shuttlewood would turn out to be the perfect person to be reporting on these events. At the time that the thing popped onto his radar, he'd already been a journalist for 20 years. (laughs) Originally from Essex, Arthur was a self-described skeptic who couldn't really be bothered by fanciful storytelling and would never be swept up in sensationalized accounts. And he was actually extremely difficult to convince that these events were real in the beginning. Hmm. He would later go on to write three books about the events on top of his slew of articles. He had been working in Warminster since 1940, and so there was a sense of familiarity between him and the residents. Hmm. He originally ran the story in a small little corner of the paper as a filler piece in early January. He really wasn't actually trying to feed anything. He's like, well... We need to put something here. And I got these weird reports. So I guess I'll just like throw them out there. (laughs) So he titled the piece Bell Hill Mystery, Weird Noises on Christmas Morning. Hmm. Even though he had no clue how much the story would blow up in the coming months, Arthur would quickly discover that the events on Christmas morning were only the beginning. So a couple of months after those events, something strange happened in Stonehenge, which Hmm. is only 15 minutes away. In February of 1965, a large flock of pigeons dropped out of the sky. Oh. It was reported that it seems as though whatever had caused their deaths, the pigeons were all killed in one fell swoop, and almost all of them had what appeared to have been instant rigor mortis on their bodies. What? Instant rigor mortis? Very weird. That is super weird. Yeah. That's like... Okay, well, first off, let me just say the... Tons of birds dropping all of a sudden. That is like way too common of an occurrence. <laughs> that I do yeah. not understand that at all. Like I, I feel Scary. like I hear about that every few years, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, still, uh, still no understanding on why that's going down, huh? We're just gonna sit here and be like, I don't know, and then move on until the next time that happens. Like, so that's bonkers that that has been happening for at least this long. I know. That's so weird. Okay. A scientist by the name of David Holton from a nearby town called Crockerton learned of this event and wrote a letter to the Warminster Journal explaining that he believed that the birds had been killed by sound waves similar to the ones in Warminster on Christmas morning because multiple residents in the area reported hearing a strong, high-pitched droning noise, Mm -hmm. like right before Mm -hmm. the pigeons were discovered. Yeah. Does not explain rigor mortis, but still alien sound waves. I feel like that. <laughs> I mean, might do it. <laughs> right. It would be more like alien, like, like, uh, microwaves. Yeah. I'm kind of giving David Holton a little bit of like, like, I feel like I kind of toned down 
what he said a little bit. Okay. He made it like there was like an epic battle between the pigeons and the sound waves <laughs> or the source of the sound waves, oh, I suppose. Okay. Okay. Um, I tried to make it sound a little bit less <laughs> sci-fi sci-fi movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm like, it still captures the tone. Yeah. He fair, would take fair. a lot of flack for his work on this. Interesting. Um, okay. I didn't get a ton into it. Yes. Of, because I just assumed we wouldn't have time to. Maybe I should at some point just yeah. write a whole episode about David Holden. Just him. Just yeah. for all the crazy stuff that he said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he would later go on to say in an interview that he believed that the source of the noise was some intelligent life form from space and that whatever it was, it would soon make itself known. Ooh. Which is looming. <laughs> that is looming. <laughs> more and more people began writing into the Warminster Journal, reporting various types of strange occurrences or corroborating stories given by other residents, such as Marjorie Bai. Hmm. Animals in the area were also being affected. Many people reported that their pets were being affected by the sounds, some even becoming super sick after hearing the weird noises. Ooh. A woman named Joan Brown reported that in March of 1965, their family had heard the bizarre droning sound, and then in the hours afterwards, their cat was sick and throwing up all over the house. Hmm. And also, like, they couldn't get the cat to calm down. It was, yeah. like, frantic. It would, like, run to another room and throw up. Run to another room and throw up. Weird. It was very out of character for the cat. Yeah. To, so like, all these creatures are reacting really strongly to mm -hmm. whatever's going on. Okay. Hm. Many others reported their pets reacting with panic after hearing the noise, like their pets would run in frantic circles and try to leave the house. They'd like scratch the door, like, oh. like in a, almost in like a trance. Yeah. Very weird. A few sources also reported finding mice that appeared to have been burned and were covered with tiny holes across their whole bodies. What? Like in people's yards and in alleyways and stuff. Ooh, that gave me goosebumps. Okay. Yeah, I don't yeah, love that's that. Weird. Others still would say that their family pet was perfectly healthy. They heard the noise and suddenly their pet died with no explanation. <laughs> what? Yep. Jeez. So what even? Yeah. By late spring, the letters to the Warminster Journal were continuing to fly in pretty much nonstop. More stories of the sounds and rattlings and that sort of thing. But soon enough, actual sightings began to take place. There were plenty of variations in the description of the crafts, hmm. some accounts featuring metallic orbs, pyramid-shaped crafts, or cigar-shaped crafts. They would sometimes be reported as a singular craft, and other times they were reported to be seen in a group of identical crafts. But interestingly, <laughs> most of the accounts shared one common thread, odd and disturbing sounds accompanying hmm. the sighting. Yeah. Not always. It's either a really weird sound or no sound. Yeah. Hmm. So there's also not a full consensus on who had the first official sighting after the Christmas morning events. Mm -hmm. But one extremely famous story that many cite as the first credible UFO sighting or sightings rather was that of a woman named Hilda Heverditch. In May of 1965, Hilda saw what would later be described by Shuttlewood as cigar shaped crafts with flashing orange and yellow lights. Hmm. She said that the crafts were always stationary, like stuck in one place, hovering soundlessly in the sky before they casually ascended and disappeared out of sight. Hmm. That is way too, an, another way too common thing for people to say. Like, it, it just makes it like, I, I guess at some point you have to say, well, have you heard that before from someone else? Whatever, whatever. But mm -hmm. like. Once again, this is so early in those kinds of reports being public and people being willing to come forward to say mm -hmm. this is what I saw. Right. That it it's just it's too routine of a thing to say. I saw this floating object that was soundlessly hovering. Mm -hmm. That's that's there's a lot to that. I feel like it takes me back to one of Terry Sherman's sightings when we were doing skinwalker ranch mm -hmm. and there was the one that he thought looked like the f-117 or the f-17 whatever it's called yeah, yeah. the fighter jets yeah but it was like pitch black but yeah. it had like a rainbow light and it was completely completely silent yeah that's crazy like his breathing was louder than the craft <sighs> gosh oh. as he was like hiding from yeah. it in the snow do you remember that yeah, one yeah i do that just gave me goosebumps again because that that one was really creepy and that's what this basically sounds like to me is another like 
looming is the right word. I feel like it just looms there Mm -hmm. and you're just kind of like, okay, this is freaking me out. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. I don't know if it's scarier to see a craft and hear really scary noises or if it's scarier to see a craft with no noise at all. And it makes you wonder, like, I feel like no noise might be scarier. It might be. But I don't know because I've never witnessed. I mean, both. Both would be horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So as far as Hilda's sighting, the weirdest thing about Hilda's account was the fact that all three times that she saw these crafts in May of 1965, they made absolutely no noise. She was convinced that what she saw was 100% extraterrestrial. Wow. No doubt in my mind. Also in May of 1965, the Marson family were awakened in the middle of the night to a loud noise. A noise which Mrs. Marson had claimed that she'd heard over the course of several weeks leading up to this night. Hmm. She was too tired to get out of bed and didn't feel like she was in any danger. So she went back to sleep, but she had a dream about a spaceship. Hmm. Her husband did get up to investigate. He looked out of the window and recalled that his wife was asleep and that his first thought when he heard the noise was of a spaceship. When they talked about it the next morning, their individual thoughts about a spaceship made them believe that something had telepathically put those images of spaceships into their minds. What? Because from what I understand, the way that they described what the spaceships looked like Mm -hmm. was like identical. Weird. Ooh. People can say anything. Sure. It doesn't mean it's true, but still. Yes. Just taking people at their word Mm -hmm. and once again, suspending the disbelief. Yeah. Scary. Well, and being willing to point out, this is not something that people wanted to share that they had seen or thought Mm -hmm. because it would ruin them. Everybody would just jump to the conclusion. These are crazy people. Or they just want attention or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So sightings continued throughout the summer of 1965 and people in the area were divided. Some believed there was a mass hysteria going on or that people were bored and looking for an exciting story to spice up their sleepy lives. Makes sense. I mean, sure. While others believe that there were natural explanations, at least for the sounds. Conversations about earth tremors or shifting plates being the most popular Mm -hmm. among the cynics. But many experts agreed that the UFO phenomenon wasn't only real, but that Warminster was at the center of it. Most of the sightings that were taking place were happening in a somewhat condensed area, mostly in the Cradle Hill and Clay Hill areas. Hmm. Interestingly, the sightings around Clay Hill came with their own lore, as old-school Anglo-Saxon folklore stated that Clay Hill was formed by the devil himself. Oh, jeez. There's a lot of mystery on Clay Hill. Apparently. Considering that both hills are located near Stonehenge, which has plenty of its own lore. Oh, man, yeah. And given, you know, the conspiracies surrounding UFOs and military involvement, Mm -hmm. or at least military knowledge of UFOs, the fact that both hills are located near a military base seemed to kind of add to the whimsy of it all. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of interesting because it feels like both sides used the military base being located nearby as like their trump card. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you get one half that's like they're testing new weapons or new crafts or whatever. And then the other half is like... (laughs) Absolutely not. Like, but the military knows what's going on. Right. Well, or they're hiding something, you know, or they're testing new crafts or weapons for this reason. With the yeah. aliens or <laughs> yeah. to go to war against yeah. them, but they're trying not to panic us. Yeah. I mean, there's pretty much endless, mm-hmm. endless fun little speculations on both sides, but I thought mm. it was funny that both sides were like, ha ha <laughs> military. The, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so in June of 1965, multiple residents in Shearweight and Hatesbury both located near Warminster, reported seeing a large cigar-shaped craft in the sky, and over a dozen eyewitnesses attested to it. Hmm. The sighting was initially reported on by the Phillips family, and this report and the subsequent follow-ups of other residents who claimed to see the same craft are really what made the thing explode into the public at large. Hmm. For a while, it was pretty local, yeah. but it was this sighting that around a dozen people saw. Yeah, that made everybody consider it as Mm -hmm. an actual threat. Right. Hmm. A few more one-off sightings real fast. And then we have to talk more about the fallout or any like, you know, Mm -hmm. the solid evidence that any of these reports can be believed. So we've got a group of high school boys who reported seeing a bright sudden flash of light in the sky, followed by a booming explosion. Hmm. So that was one. That's 
Okay. Yeah. There was a driver who recalled almost colliding with a flaming orb head on. Really? Driving home at night. Almost collided with this thing. Flaming orb right there. Mm -hmm. We've also got another loud explosion that shook the homes in the Borum Hills neighborhood. Residents who looked outside to try and find the source of the noise were shocked and horrified to discover what one witness described as, quote, a monstrous orange flame was seen in the sky, crackling and hissing. End quote. Oh, a whole neighborhood heard and saw that. And that sounds like they're seeing a star up close. Right. But weird. Totally. Hmm. Fantastical claims of UFOs being present brought on the conversation surrounding the possibility that the thing, whatever it was, was preparing for an invasion of the English countryside. And indeed, an invasion was imminent, but maybe not the kind that people were expecting. Hmm. By the late summer of 1965, Warminster grew from its population of about 10,000, numbers that remained pretty consistent since the end of World War II, and skyrocketed to 18,000 or so residents in the town at any given point. Oh, wow. So it almost doubled in size. (laughs) Scores of people flocked to Clay and Cradle Hills in hopes of seeing the thing for themselves. Hotels were at max capacity, bars and restaurants were always packed, and people were coming out of the woodwork and into Warminster. Oh, so this is like like a like a touristy explosion, yes. not yes. a not a boom of population of people moving in so much. Yes and no. Both. Oh, okay. Yeah. People were it put Warminster on the map, basically. Yeah. Okay. But the phenomenon <laughs> of it exploding in yeah. like a very short period of time. Gave people a lot of interest. Yes. Yes. So one thing was still missing. Any hard evidence. (laughs) That is until August 19th, 1965. On that date, 21-year-old factory worker Gordon Faulkner had just exited his home to go visit his mother when he saw a craft in the sky. Like other reports, the craft appeared to be metallic and was totally silent. But unlike other sightings, Gordon was able to snap a very famous photo as the craft blasted off through the sky. Hmm. He sent it off to the Warminster Journal and told Shuttlewood to do as he seemed fit with it. Whatever you want. I got this picture. Here you go. Yeah. He's very casual about it. (laughs) Super chill. Yeah. Yeah. Shuttlewood ended up using the photo in an article that he was writing about the UFO craze that he was actually writing for the Daily Mirror, which Hmm. appeared in the publication in September of 1965. After this photo became massively popular and widely disputed, Gordon Faulkner would regularly accept interviews with news sources who wanted to know things like, how did you get the photo? Is it real? And that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Editors at the Daily Mirror were not convinced that it was like a valid photo. Hmm. But many people were. Yeah. And I've seen the picture. I've seen it. It's very weird. We'll definitely put it on the Instagram. Yeah. Okay. It could have been faked. But it also, like, I don't know if I want it to be fake. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the growing problem in Warminster, no pun intended, was the population explosion. On August 27th, 1965, a town hall meeting was set up by local authorities with the hopes of opening up the floor for residents to voice their concerns about the town being taken over by new residents, both permanent and temporary. Hmm. They assumed there would be some residents who would come in and have thoughts or questions about the thing, but they did not anticipate how this town hall meeting would turn out. Interestingly enough, the meeting turned into a place where resident after resident came forward to share what they had seen or heard and their concerns about the thing itself. Were any of them safe? Did the Mm. authorities know anything that the citizens didn't? What on earth is even happening here? That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a wild, it was a wild time. So people are coming in primarily for this town hall meeting for population conversations. Do we need to, you know, expand our infrastructure or whatever? Yeah. And the conversation is monopolized by the thing. Yeah. That is crazy. Like the the huh. people in charge of setting it up were like like town officials and authorities and stuff assumed that some people would bring it up. But like yeah. the original intent was, you know, we need to quell some concerns here. We need to have a, a discussion on how to do this well. Yeah. Since there's a lot of visitors and a lot of people moving in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it just ended up everybody talking about the thing. Just. 
So I, wow. I just always, whenever I hear the words town hall meeting, I always think of Parks Bonnie. And Rec. Yes, yeah, yeah. 100% of the time. <laughs> and I think of like the really angry yeah. guy. I think of ham and ham mayonnaise. And mayonnaise. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. And I, you know, he was at this town hall meeting. Of course he was. The yes. equivalent of this guy with a really cool accent was yes. there. So I'm trying to not overstate this, but Shuttlewood literally had notebook after notebook full of eyewitness reports of the thing. And he was starting to become convinced that there really was something out of this world happening in Warminster. Hmm. His belief in the phenomenon became solidified when he himself, a self-proclaimed skeptic saw the thing on September. Oh. Yeah, he did. Mm. He did on September 28th, 1965. He saw a cigar shaped craft that was massive and majestic with a white core and what he believed to be an extremely polished amber colored protrusion. Hmm. So very flying saucer. Yes. White core in the middle. And then the saucer around was like amber colored. It yeah. was like extremely, extremely well polished. Oh, interesting. Yes. This was the single event that turned a neutral skeptic into a believer. And he would eventually go on, like I said before, to write three books about the thing. And he was the 199th recorded eyewitness of the thing. Oh, wow. So he had almost 200 reports. Yeah. And some of them were group reports. Wow. Which is crazy. <laughs> Hundreds of people yeah. were seeing and hearing things. That blows my mind. Wow. I feel like I kind of glossed over that a little bit. Well, and it's crazy because he, like you said, he was a skeptic. He was just collecting information. He really doesn't have any real reason to add his own name to it because mm -hmm. he could, he could keep his legitimacy and still report on this mm -hmm. without his own eyewitness testimony being a part of it. But right. if he sees something and he is staying true to the events and all that, he's going to include his own testimony. If it mm -hmm. makes a, makes a, uh, makes it into the qualifying, whatever, you know, the qualifying reports or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about to get really weird. Oh, good. From September through October of that year, Shuttlewood would receive some very mysterious communication. Mm. Over the course of seven weeks, he would receive phone calls. The callers alleging themselves to be beings from outer space. No. <laughs> they said, here we go. Okay, okay. <laughs> they said they were from a planet called Ainstria and that their names were Callison, a senior spacecraft commander. Saloric, the English interpreter for Anstria, and Trailison, the queen of Anstria. Hmm. In these calls, they told Shuttlewood that given his reputation in England as a reputable journalist, that perhaps he could use his position to pass on messages from the Anstrian council. <laughs> okay. This is getting weirder now. Okay. I told you. You, they, you in, they informed him that while they were not able to intervene in human political affairs, they wanted to warn humanity of the dangers awaiting us. They said that we should prepare for impending ecological disaster. They too had experienced ecological fallout on their planet when their technology advanced too quickly. Hmm. Callison warned against the development and use of certain scientific and military equipment, particularly anything requiring atomic energy. According to Shuttlewood, he said, quote, man could so easily topple headlong over the verge of safety into utter oblivion from sanity to suicidal madness. The envelope of our Earth cantle, which means planet and Anstria, apparently mm. would, if we did not exert great care, ignite from end to end in a blazing inferno, end quote. The overall wow. fear was not for humans only, though. If the Earth was to become too far gone in their development and utilization of certain technologies, it could, in essence, destroy the entire solar system, the galaxy, and other galaxies and planets, should the disaster be as devastating as they believed it would be. Wow. Yes. Mm. It was learned that the Queen was fearful of the radiation in the skies and the impending mutations and pollutions this radiation would inevitably be putting out into the whole universe. Wow. They shared about themselves as well, their culture, their advanced technologies, and their ability to live for extremely long periods of time. The queen was only a wee tot at 450 years old. Just a baby. <laughs> Just a baby. 
They also warned against the hectic pace of life that humans chose for themselves, and they warned about the mental, emotional, and physical demands we unnecessarily put on ourselves in our weird, like, rat race that we aren't actually bound to, mm. which, like, same. Yes. You know what? I'm I'm more into this all of a sudden. Can we move That's, planets? Just, <laughs> like, come over to Anstria. Yeah. How do we join you? <laughs> Where do we sign? Yes. They said, <laughs> we could choose differently. You guys don't have to be yeah. in a mad dash all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Queen Trelson, I feel like I pronounce it different every time. It's okay. <laughs> she understands. Well, so she warned that if we didn't stop what we were doing soon, the well-being of our whole species was at huge risk for imploding along with our planet. Hmm. While, I mean, Shuttlewood believed these were hoaxes. Oh, okay. Okay. He's like, this is a very clever hoax. Yeah. He told his friends about the phone calls. And he actually did end up writing about them in his book, in like the appendix. Of oh, his sure. Book. It didn't get yeah. like a whole feature, but he's like, this happened, should probably mention it. Right. Just in case this comes back around. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he wrote that one in, he wrote about that in the Warminster Mystery, which was the first book. Mm, okay. One interesting thing about the calls is that they were made from a payphone in Borum Hills. They were long phone calls, and there was not once the sound of coins being added to the payphone to keep the call going. There was not the normal background noise, and the calls were extremely clear, except for an implacable crackling noise, almost like an unknown electrical interference for the duration of every single phone call. Hmm. Interestingly, John Keel, the author of the Mothman Prophecies, actually weighed in on the calls. He said that the contactors should be at least somewhat taken seriously. In one of Kiel's books, he wrote, quote, angels, elementals, and UFO knots all play amusing games with their names, favoring minor variations on ancient languages, end quote. Hmm. He alleges that Anstria, Calcin, and Siloric are most likely derived from Greek. Hmm. Yeah. So the UFO knots, as I will call them forever and <laughs> yeah. for always, yeah. <laughs> now that I know this word, would stop calling after seven weeks, but this would not be the last time Shuttlewood would hear from them. Hmm. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but apparently Shuttlewood met with a figure that claimed to be a representative of Angstria. The figure, Karn, was the name that I saw, gave some predictions and warnings and then bebopped out of there. Hmm. There's more to it, but... That was the thing that I saw happened. That's <laughs> he like was told, like, don't touch me or whatever. And he I guess he kept looking down at this like weird metal thing on his wrist. Uh-huh. Hmm. And he would like pause and stare at it before responding. It was like a very weird that little weird. man or resident of Angstria. Yeah. yeah. Could be very normal it, on that hmm. planet to look at your uh wrist metal and I mean maybe wait for it's some like an kind Apple Watch. Yeah. Maybe. But yeah. You never know. Or it was time travelers with an Apple Watch. <gasps> oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. Kevin. <laughs> I know. I'm really bringing in another degree dimension to this. Yes. Anyway. I, there, there is more to that, but you should just go read the books. Go read Shuttlewood's books. They're kind of hard to find, but if you want the whole scoop on that, look there. Yeah. So real fast, the phone calls were not limited to Shuttlewood apparently. In one account, a man got a strange phone call where a voice invited him to come to a location called Heaven's Gate on a particular date and time. Oh, that just gave so me not Marshall, not that Heaven's, Heaven's Gate. Gate. It's yeah. actually like a like a tourist, not tourist. Um, it's like a spot you go to admire nature. Oh, okay. It's like a really okay. scenic place. Yeah, That's yeah. the word I was looking for. Hmm. Yeah. So this guy went. At the same time on the date that the caller had told him to. But he did bring his girlfriend with him. Hmm. When they got there, they both claimed to have seen a tiny spaceship land. Out of the spaceship came dozens of tiny figures, roughly four inches in height. The little critters suddenly grew to normal human size and shook their hands, inviting them both to come and witness all of the wonders that the world has to offer. The only caveat being that they need to be shrunken down to four inches also so they can fit in the craft. (laughs) The man was stoked about it, but his girlfriend decided not to join. So she waited in their parked car for eight hours before he returned from his weird little trip around the galaxy. What? So that's an account given. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I, I don't know what to make of that. Does the girlfriend affirm that account or is that just from the guy? I do not know. Okay. 
I'm very curious to know if she's like, yeah, that totally happened. And it was weird. Yeah. And just like, she just kind of shrugs it off because she wasn't a part of it, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. Hmm. Uh, either way, that one was like, okay. Yeah. On October 7th, 1965, a clerk named Annabelle Plowman was driving home with her fiance. As they approached a bridge, they saw a figure laying on the bridge. Mm-hmm. They swerved to miss what they assumed to be a person who was either hurt or maybe drunk and passed out. Mm. They pulled the car over and ran to where the body had been laying just seconds before, but there was nothing there. They absolutely insisted that they saw someone laying on the bridge. So they searched the immediate area, but they found no sign that anyone had ever been there at all. Yeah. So Annabelle dropped off her fiance at their home. And about an hour and a half later, she drove back to the bridge. Once again, there was no man laying there, but this time she saw a glowing orb near one of the ditches next to the bridge. Mm. As she approached it, her car started malfunctioning. She said that it felt as though it was being repelled by that orange orb. Weird. Like she was trying to drive towards it and it would be like slowly pushed back. Uh uh Her headlights were flickering on and off. She looked around and that's when she saw what she assumed to be a strange vehicle, a circular unlit craft. Hmm. She stopped her car and watched as the orange orb blasted across the bridge. The engine of her car failed as the thing went from orange to red, spinning around before flying off. It was in that moment that she saw two figures standing in the middle of the road. No. It was dark, but she believed that they were staring at her. Yes, that would be horrifying, and I would not excited to be in that so position. She's, yeah, she's like freaking out. She's yes. in a frenzy trying to start her car. Right. So she finally gets it started. She's like taking a deep breath. And really the only way that she can get off of this road without needing to make like an 85 point turn is to drive across the bridge where the figures are standing. Right. So she floored it. Yeah. And swerved past them. She was later able to describe these events and the figures to Shuttlewood. She said that they were hooded with slots cut out for their deeply sunken in all white eyes. She wondered if this was some strange military exercise. But when Shuttlewood made contact with two separate higher ups in the military base nearby, they both said that there were no authorized military exercises on that evening. Also, my goodness, that would be just the most Halloween-y version of a military exercise I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> True. <laughs> oh my gosh. Sightings remained pretty consistent through the end of the year and into 1966. Figures similar to the ones that Annabelle had seen would gain their own slew of witnesses that year as well. Hmm. I couldn't find a name for this witness. All I know is that it was a man. Okay. So this man was riding his motorcycle at night in Crockerton on January 21st, 1966, when he saw three figures in the brush near a body of water. He pulled over to get a closer look, and that's when he saw a ball or saucer of light blast up from the ground and towards Clay Hill. Hmm. He, too, looked around, astounded by what he'd already seen, and that's when he saw the figures again. He described them as wearing gray clothing. They were very humanoid, but they had broad shoulders, large heads, and then rail-thin legs. Weird. Their faces were extremely white with sunken-in eyes that were spaced very far apart. Hmm. They had small noses, but it appeared as though they did not have mouths. Okay. Wow. He described them as frogmen, which fear not, we do have a frogman episode ahead of us. Oh, fun. And... Frogman is very weird yes, and I'm creepy. Sure. So more reports of strange figures include plenty involving nude humanoids jumping into bushes. <laughs> they could be seen covered in what looked like blood, wearing only thin moccasin-like shoes and sometimes loose-fitting, like almost like crepe material as a shirt. Mm-hmm. In these encounters, these mystery men were witnessed mumbling and moaning something incoherent. In one case, one of these frogmen, mystery men monster alien things was taken to the hospital which within a day what? it had promptly disappeared what? What? i literally could find nothing else some Did- reports say it was there for a day or two and then whoever it was checked themselves out very manlike in appearance but just some weird proportion business mm-hmm. and then like nothing about the weird face or anything but they didn't have like a name attached to it no photo like no name what? nothing <gasps> okay So, yeah. Another very famous sighting was reported by a councilman named Charles Hud. 
He arrived at the parking lot for work around 4.45 a.m. There were also four other co-workers who had arrived in the parking lot around the same time. Suddenly, a cigar-shaped craft flew across the sky before stretching into a long white line and yeah okay and exploding into six red spheres that spun as they descended towards the ground they stopped falling and continued to spin in place for a short time and then they changed colors from red to silver each of the silver spheres then sped off in different directions and out of sight sightings that involved a single craft almost exploding into several smaller ones that seemed to split and then follow some strange choreography were reported on by many witnesses across the span of many years. Hmm. Just like Charles. Yeah. Yeah. What type of technology would have the ability to do that? That is very weird. That's super weird. And my mind honestly is being like blown a little bit in some of these stories because they also have gotten, creepier as you've gone on mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm like okay this is not a normal little fun alien story this is like a horrifying like if you saw that you you would be freaking out you'd be forever changed yeah exactly you would never be the same again <sighs> so hopefully i've laid enough groundwork to demonstrate that at the very least something weird was happening in warminster and the surrounding areas mm-hmm. It's pretty unprecedented to have so many sightings and odd occurrences take place in the same area with so many witnesses. Yeah. I mean, we're talking hundreds upon hundreds of reports. Shuttlewood would assemble a team to go sky watching with him. One of the more interesting elements of this is that over the course of many years, Shuttlewood and his photographer that was on his skywatching team would take 3,523 photos of alleged spacecrafts with only 101 of those photos being convincing. Hmm. But the ones they did manage to develop were actually pretty convincing. Wow. So if I'm not infringing on any copyright laws, I want to share Some of those as well, for sure. You should. (laughs) Specialist groups and skeptics looking to either prove or disprove the phenomenon continued to pour into Warminster, as did the sightings. Over the course of the next several years, sightings would begin to slow down, but Warminster really seemed to embrace its reputation of being the hottest UFO spot in England, with businesses selling UFO-themed merchandise, and someone even opened up a UFO-themed bed and breakfast. (laughs) Since the 1970s, sightings have continued with much smaller numbers, but public interest is definitely not what it once was. Mm, Sure. As methods for observing UFOs or UAPs have advanced and become more niche, so has the likelihood of the public at large being convinced that such things exist somewhere out there or in their own backyard. Yeah. It's all become commoditized. So it's Mm -hmm. just a fun thing now. It's not. Well, even on top of that, the ability to manipulate, anything with our phones oh true you know or create something in a studio Mm -hmm. that is very easy to do now yeah you can watch a few youtube videos and learn how to do that yourself you know Mm. so people are more skeptical than they ever have been for sure yeah despite the criticism of his work shuttlewood remained a staunch believer in the warminster thing until he passed away in 1996 and he is remembered by UFO professionals and enthusiasts for the ground he laid in his documentation of the events that took place that he and countless others claimed to have bore witness to. Hmm. In 2015, a mural was painted in Warminster depicting an artistic take on the thing and the high strangeness that surrounded its presence to mark the 50-year anniversary since the odd sounds blasted in Warminster on Christmas morning. Hmm. Theories have popped up from time to time over the years, but to this day, there is not one single agreed-upon explanation of the events, and so this is technically an unsolved phenomenon. So I do have a few books, articles, and videos that I'll be linking in case you're interested in reading more, because honestly, okay, the book I read for this story is called In Alien Heat, The Warminster Mystery Revisited, by Steve Dewey and John Rise. So this one was chocked full of detailed accounts and all kinds of other interesting things about this story. Yeah. And not just this story. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot of things surrounding it, a lot of context and all that. That's cool. Yes. (laughs) So if you would like, I'll definitely make sure to link that one. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. Aliens. Aliens, man. Aliens everywhere. This is, this is definitely a fun episode. 
for that. <laughs> I was a little I, all over the place, but there were just so many stories. That there's I'm like, a lot of stories. With and so many specific details. Yes. that's And some of those details, like I said earlier, they just get creepy. And, and, and uh, uh, they paint a very vivid picture that just kind of makes you go, okay, wow, this is... I think the frogmen scare me the most. Yeah, that's weird. No mouths. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's oh. the Warminster thing. Wow. My goodness. Oh, well, thank you for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. I mean, this one wasn't unsavory, I don't feel. But no. it was definitely unusual and left me unsettled a few times. So if you have a, an opinion on that, please let us know on the Instagram or Facebook posts how you felt about today's episode. And also, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite listening platform um, and leave a glowing five-star review. Those reviews help other people find this podcast as well. And connect with us on social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok, at This One Is A Doozy, and on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. And you can also connect with us over email, thisoneisadoozy at gmail.com. And lastly, via Patreon. Why don't you tell them about Patreon, my dear? Yeah, for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing here. Patreon subscribers get access to polls where you can vote on episode topics. And you can also help us decide each month which charity or memorial fund or cause that we believe in that you would like us to donate to. And you can find our Patreon either by going to patreon.com or the app and searching This One's a Doozy Podcast, or you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook About section. And that is all we've got today. We will see you later on this week. Regular doozy. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.